The CBF Podcast Conversation is presented to you by Fuller Seminary. Fuller Seminary's MA in Theology and Ministry offers a practice-focused theological education. Learn from Fuller's seasoned scholar practitioners with online classes and apply what you're learning to your own context. Whatever your ministry goals, Fuller Seminary's MA in Theology and Ministry will help you take the next step in your vocation. For more information, visit fuller.edu backslash M-A-T-M degree. That's fuller.edu backslash M-A-T-M degree. Since 2016, CBF has brought you over 100 episodes of interviews with authors and practitioners for conversations that matter. These stories of creativity and innovation have garnered weekly support from around the United States and the world. We are inviting you, the listeners, to join us in connecting with the podcast. Become a monthly listener supporter and receive some perks, including name recognition on the podcast, questions for upcoming guests, free books from the podcast, joining the podcast for an interview, and a VIP experience with the General Assembly podcast guest. There are five levels of listener support, starting at $5 per month. For less than the cost of a pumpkin spice latte, you will be featured by name on the weekly podcast episode. For more information and to join the community of listener supporters, visit cbf.net slash podcast support. This is the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship's Conversations. We are bringing you stories from across the fellowship through interviews with people doing groundbreaking work in renewing God's world. Ideas, stories, and innovation from ministers, authors, and practitioners from across the fellowship and beyond. This is Andy Hale. 2020 is off to a great start for the CBF podcast with guests like Father Thomas Reese, Soong Cheng Ra, and Casey Van Norman. We also have a lot of exciting episodes ahead, including interviews with Eugene Cho, Sarah Bessie, and our week in D.C. at Advocacy in Action. Don't forget that you can be a part of supporting the podcast while receiving some great benefits, such as joining an interview with an upcoming guest, books from authors interviewed, and a VIP experience at this summer's General Assembly. We want to thank William Johnson and Cindy Folendor for their monthly support of the podcast. Check out how you can support at cbf.net backslash podcast support. Now, on to our conversation. Our guests for this week's CBF podcast conversation are the comedy team of the Laugh in Peace comedy tour with Bob Alper, uh, Jabron Salim, and Susan Sparks. Uh, thank you all for joining the conversation. Thank you. Thanks for thank having you, us, Andy. Andy. Now, it seems like the beginning of a good joke. A rabbi, a Muslim, and a Baptist preacher sit down for, for an interview. So... Um, Y'all are a comedy team, so that, I mean, it's just got to play into itself, right? We are the punchline. Yeah. <laughs> well, before we get into your collaborative work together, which is fascinating, we want to get to know each of you just a little bit more. So, Bob, we'll start with you. Um, you hold a doctorate from Princeton Theological Seminary. You're also an ordained rabbi. Uh, walk us through a sense of calling to the rabbinic ministry. Well, you know, I, I have all those degrees and I served 14 years in a congregation because I always wanted to be a stand-up comic and I needed a hook. 
So, so I, <laughs> I went through all that. Yeah. Um, my calling as a rabbi, it was very natural. Um, when I was in uh, growing up, my parents were very active in their synagogue. Uh, I always wanted to do something working with people. Um, my uncle, my late uncle, was a rabbi, so he was a role model. So as a profession, uh, it wasn't one of these, I put my hand on a rock and got inspired. It was a logical career choice, and it was the right career choice for me. Um, fortunately, I was able to grasp the uh, most of the good parts of the rabbinate and not some of the more difficult parts. I served congregations for 14 years and then found myself doing stand-up comedy. Um, and I like to explain to, to my audiences that there are all kinds of ways of being a rabbi. Uh, congregational life, organizational life, uh, teaching, academic life. And it took me a while to articulate this, but my rabbinate is making people laugh. Uh, there's enormous value in that. Mm. And I always quote Maya Angelou, who says, people forget what you say, they forget what you do, but they never forget how you make them feel. Mm. So. so you've done some, um, also done some pretty remarkable work, uh, including appearance at Hollywood's Comedy Store, uh, Montreal Comedian Festival. For you, uh, why stand-up comedy? Why is it something that, that you enjoy pursuing? Comedy is, is a healthy addiction. Uh, if you can make people laugh, you get an immediate response, an immediate reward from it. So it's something I loved doing. I loved it as a kid. I used to do Bob Newhart and, and Shelley Berman routines. Uh, I always had a good sense of humor. And here's a way of doing it professionally and to a wider range of an audience. And there is something highly religious about it because you're bringing people uh, uh, help, healing, hope, spiritual uplift. So there are so many reasons to love being able to make people laugh. And I'm just really fortunate that I have uh, the talent to do it and the opportunity to do it. And in this case, with Laugh and Peace Store, to have the colleagues to do it with. Um, because the best part of doing Laugh and Peace is listening to my colleagues because they make me laugh. <laughs> well, if comedy doesn't work out for you, you can always have the um, Steve Martin or Bernie Sanders look-alike gigs right, that right. you can uh, right. promote across the country. So. I, I tell people, you know, I'm a 70-something white-haired Jew from Vermont. Uh, and that um, uh, if you put Bernie Sanders and me together, foot to foot and stretches out, we'd look like a human Q-tip. <laughs> Feel the bob. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Jabron, you, uh, you've done some pretty mar remarkable stuff in comedy as well, um, via NBC and MTV and Comedy Central and TBS. Um, and we'll get to that, that shortly. But uh, how did a psychology major at NYU end up in comedy? Um, so basically, yeah, I moved to New York City. Uh, I was born in North Carolina. Uh, my family moved to Virginia when I was like five years old. I moved to New York City not to do comedy. I moved there to, I was in graduate school at NYU. I was doing a master's in psychology. The goal was to then go towards a PhD. Uh, I loved comedy. I was obsessed with comedy, but, you know, in a lot of, like, Pakistani, a lot of Muslim households, a lot of immigrant households, they basically come to America for security and to pursue fields that are much more stable. So I didn't grow up with, like, you can do anything you want. It's more like, like you can do anything 
in a hospital. Uh, <laughs> as a doctor specifically, yeah. or anything similar like this. So once I moved to New York, I was always going to shows. I lived two blocks away from a comedy club, and I was always going to shows. And eventually, just that, that the little comedy bug inside me started growing and growing. And, I, and then I went to watch an open mic, which is just like amateur comedians, aspiring comedians, just everyday people who are trying to do comedy or trying it out. And so I watched it. And I was like, oh, I can do this too. And then that seed just grew more and more. And eventually, I went on stage. I didn't think I was, and, and I was just obsessed. And the second I went on stage, I was like, oh, this is what I want to do. And I didn't even think I was going to finish my master's in psychology. I kind of just like dilly-dallied. Uh, I wonder if they use that term a lot in the South. Um, <laughs> no idea. But uh, I kind of yes. just, yeah? OK, yeah. well, I, I just dilly-dallied in the program, and I wasn't sure I was going to finish. But eventually, I did. But I just was just aggressively doing comedy. And eventually, I shifted to full-time comedian. And now I'm here in Knoxville, Tennessee. Yes. <laughs> Everything you hoped it would be, right? I love comedy. Uh, oh, oh, I'm in Knoxville, Knoxville, Tennessee. <laughs> well, I can't say the same for Knoxville, but no, uh, Knoxville's great. Yeah, is Duck Donuts big here? I don't, I don't know. I mean, they're not sponsoring the podcast today, but the, the delicious coffee and and, and donuts. So. Um, well, yeah, I just see a lot of Duck Donuts. Anyways, that's tangential. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, I mean, comedy brings me, it brings us into so many different locations, places in America, outside of America. So it's really great to just explore other cultures, other backgrounds, other people, and just really get their perspective and also bring them my own perspective. Yeah. Is there any better way for a comedian to flop to come out and, like, say, you know, hello to name city, and it's not the city they're actually in? It's like immediately. Yes. Your audience disconnects with you and doesn't want to hear For anything sure. you to say. We did, uh, uh, I believe me and Bob did Miami University somewhere in like Ohio. And I was tongue in cheek, I was saying oh, this is my first time performing in Fort Lauderdale. Uh, so yeah, I'm very familiar with slip ups like that. Now you're working on a documentary right now. What, what can you tell us about it? Well, so no, I w was part of a documentary in. Uh, in Japan on a TV channel called NHK TV, which is supposedly like the BBC of Japan. Okay. Uh, it was called Brown is Funny. Uh, it was called Asian Dreamers. The episode I was on was called Brown is Funny. So Pakistan is part of South Asia. It's around the Middle East, but it's technically South Asian or South Asia. So that was very interesting. Now I'm working on a short film called Gibranistan. <laughs> Uh, which takes place in Indiana. Uh, it's just based off of me getting pulled over at the side of the road while I was already parked and taking pictures of a cornfield in Indiana. So it kind of functions. It's 100% comedy. There is racial undertones, but it's, uh, yeah, it just functions as getting pulled over when you're already parked, meaning I was outside of my car, so not knowing, do I go in the car? Do I roll the windows up? Do I start the car? It was a push-button car, meaning there's no key. I didn't want the police to think I was just ready to drive off. So it's all about that. Awesome. Now, Susan, uh, 
you're a pretty big deal because you've actually already been on the CBF podcast. So what's remarkable is that you're actually willing to sit back down and have a conversation <laughs> with, with me. Highlight. Highlight yeah. from me. So uh, you're the senior pastor at Madison Avenue Baptist Church in the shadow of the Empire State Building. Right. Uh, what's, what's ministry like in, in the city that never sleeps? That is why you need to study improv, Andy. You have to study improv to be a pastor, and especially in New York City, because you never know what's coming in the door. You know, we have um, a very aggressive open-door policy that everybody's welcome, which they are. Uh, but you never know when you invite everyone who's coming in. You know, we have folks coming in that are uh, tourists that don't speak any English, but, you know, have heard that our church is, you know, we had a, a huge group from France come in uh, two weeks ago, and they said, you are a gospel church translating through, like, three people. And I, we're not really, but I thought, that's going to double the size of the congregation. So I'm like, yes, we are. <laughs> they came in, and, you know, it's great. It's great. But um, New York, we have a very, very diverse congregation, um, about 60% people of color. We have Russians sitting by Ukraine. We have Asian, Hispanic, 97 down to two days old at this point. So it's a real microcosm of the world. And to minister to that is really to learn to minister to all people. Now, we ultimately want to push people back to your episode to learn a little bit more about your story, but you were a lawyer, then turned comedian, and then later to ministry. So walk us through the importance of discernment in your life. The importance of the sermon? Yeah, discernment. Oh, discernment. Yeah. I was like, i got to give a sermon? Yeah, right now, actually. What are you preaching? Sunday? Yeah, I have no idea. Andy, thanks for, bro- <laughs> thanks for letting me broadcast that nationally. Um, yeah, I, unlike Bob, I put my hand on a stone and... Uh, <laughs> No, um, actually, I I was just I grew up a goofy little kid who loved to be funny and wanted to be a preacher. That was it in a nutshell. And at about seven years old, unfortunately, I was raised um, in a very conservative tradition with the Southern Baptist Church. She said, "Women can't do that." So at six, what do you do? So I just kind of went my direction, and 20 years later, found myself a trial lawyer, which actually makes sense. It's the same job, just different clients, you know. So I'm a trial lawyer for a while, and yet. Yeah, that call kept coming back and finally one day I found myself um, I was actually doing a little country music and stand-up comedy in the bars in Atlanta Shakara, a Baptist but one night I'm doing my little stand-up comedy in a bar like the wagon wheel or something behind some chicken wire and I look and there's a stand- managing partner in my law firm sitting out there they didn't know I was doing this the people in the bar didn't know I was a lawyer and I thought I'm gonna be fired so he comes up to me at the break and he said that woman on stage is great. She would be awesome in the courtroom. Where is she in a trial? <laughs> and I realized that I was just checking most of myself at the door. You know, I was trying to be all prim and proper in the courtroom, and yet I'm going out and being my real authentic self. So it was that was the turning point for me, Andy. Honestly, I realized I had to bring all of who I was to what I did. And so that's the moment the call started coming back. I started reclaiming the spiritual path. I started reclaiming that call to be a minister. And I brought comedy kicking and screaming into the church. Hmm. Okay, so how does a rabbi, a Muslim, and a Baptist preacher get together to do this whole comedy thing? Walk us through the story of how this all formed, this this, cor- this group that you all have together. In uh, <clears throat> December of 2001, I hired a publicist in Los Angeles. to, And uh, the purpose of a publicist is to increase a performer's visibility. Uh, she was not particularly effective. Basically, she got me into the witness protection program. But uh, one day she said, I got this great idea about why don't you do a show with a, a Muslim comedian? 
And uh, Mr. I said, do you have any other ideas? Uh, and it, it wasn't the idea of being doing a, a Jewish-Muslim show. It was working with another comedian, because many comedians are neurotic, present company accepted. Yeah. Um, but she found a guy. We swapped videotapes across the country. We liked what we saw. And we started in April of 2002. And since then, we've been doing these shows. We, we actually said that maybe we should have a, a Jew, a Muslim, and a Christian. But back then, we, we couldn't find any Christian comedians. <laughs> So, <laughs> correction. There are some. They're just are not they, very good. <laughs> yeah, I, I just. I have I have a lot of memories from my childhood having to watch awful like Super Bowl <laughs> halftime videos that were usually Christian comedians or evangelists, and it was just awful. Ew, well, there, there, yeah. there are some. So, anyway, so we we worked together for a while, and then uh, I got a call from Susan, and she'll she'll tell you about how how that all happened. Uh, and so they came, and that, that's how the the laugh piece developed and since then the whole laughing piece with various people me always and then with a number of Muslim comics and with Susan uh, we've done probably <laughs> six seven hundred shows uh, a lot of colleges uh, but amazing places we did the uh, Clinton presidential library uh, the World Bank we've uh, performed in uh, Europe um, we, uh, I performed solo at Muslim Fest in Toronto. Uh, we've done uh, uh, the Winnipeg Central Mosque. We had one night in Winnipeg. I'll never forget. We, we did a show at the Jewish Community Center at 6 o'clock and at the Winnipeg Central Mosque at 8 o'clock. And there were Muslims attending the show at the Jewish Center, and there were Jews attending the show at the uh, mosque, and there were Christians at both shows. It was wonderful and a demonstration of how humor brings people together. Uh, so... That's the Laugh and Peace Tour, and uh, we're still going strong. We still love doing it. Well, Gibran, uh, you know, maybe walk us through, what's the creative process of developing your, your shared material together? Um, sometimes I don't even know. I, it, I figure it out, but, it, but it's evolved over time. Uh, when I started comedy, I was just writing one-liners. Uh, I really like this comedian named Dimitri Martin, and um, I would just write obscure one-liners, and I slowly realized, oh, that's not me. That's the comedian that I really like. And so since then, how I've evolved it is usually an experience will happen, and I'll have a thought in my head that's like, that's weird. And then I'll take that story and kind of exaggerate it, exaggerate it with like comedic notes to it. And then now, a lot of times, sometimes I'll just see something or just something that stands out in my mind, and I'm like, oh, that's funny. It may not be funny to everyone else, but in my perspective, I'm like, oh, that's funny. And then I'll try to write around what inspired that particular thing to stand out. So a lot of times it's observation or personal experiences that stand out to me, and then I take that and I kind of exaggerate it and write around that, and then hopefully people laugh. <laughs> This is, I guess you can imagine there's there's probably y'all have experienced some hecklers. Oh yeah, you for know, sure. Uh, so what is that experience like doing that together? And what is it? What are those idiots team to, seem to be heckling y'all about? Bob and Gibran are the worst hecklers. Really. <laughs> oh for sure. <laughs> we just heckle Susan. Dude. Yeah. <laughs> we, we we don't really have hecklers in our show. Yeah. I think people are intimidated. <laughs> uh, no, they don't heckle us. And uh, personally, my. Uh, 
I don't. I only have one heckler line. I, I didn't do many clubs, fortunately, but one time in a club, one guy was talking in the back, and I just stopped the show and I said, "Excuse me, sir, uh, would you mind leading us in the silent prayer?" <laughs> <laughs> But that, and if he continued, I was dead because that's the only heckler retort I had. <laughs> but you know, our, I think also our audience are high class. If I, sh you know, I think we attract a very intelligent audience. They want to see something that that brings communities together. Um, they're not drinking, uh, so it's not like a club. And, and we really don't have hecklers. I remember a show that I think this was just early on, Bob. I, I was opening for you in New Jersey. Do you, I don't know if you remember this. And there was a guy on the front row that was very hard of hearing. And there's that split second after you hit a punchline and before people laugh. And every single time I hit a punchline, you hear, What? <laughs> you know? And it's like, I don't even know what to do with this. He wasn't really heckling, but it was just like, Oh. Yeah, I. A lot it. of times, people who heckle. Um, they don't know that they're heckling. You can also have positive hecklers that are people that are saying things because in their head they think they're adding to your joke or they're adding towards a show. Yeah. Luckily, as Bob was saying, uh, with our Laugh and Peace shows, we rarely have hecklers. But in New York, like I'll do all types of shows, all types of venues. I've done shows at a barber shop. Uh, oftentimes they're bars. Uh, and you'll have so many different types of hecklers. Uh, some have a like, pro prove it, you're funny mentality. I think I'm funnier than you, but rather than keeping quiet, they'll vocalize that. And there's so many ways to respond. But I think the biggest thing that I've realized is that if you're going to go in on someone, the audience has to be on your side. Otherwise, you'll lose the room versus shutting down the heckler. So you kind of play it moment to moment. And um, sometimes you may not address a heckler right away because it may not be that much of an inconvenience to the show. But if it keeps on reoccurring, then the audience is getting frustrated, which gives you so much more room to address what's going on. Well, you're sitting in a room with a couple handful of Baptist ministers. Some of them are listening to the conversation. I guarantee there's probably going to be one that's like, oh, no hecklers at your show. Challenge accepted. Just <laughs> wait. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. That's why I seem like, a, uh, you know, I guess an existential question about how we all function as a group, but why do you do what you do together? Well, I, I'll just throw my answer out. I, I find this to be one of the most powerful parts of the ministry that I do, um, and my church does too. They so believe in the visual, the simple visual of the three of us on stage, because what's put out in the media and what's put out publicly, is it tears tears people down. It tears um, traditions down. And it builds walls. What we do is the opposite. We're trying to build the bridge. We're trying to bring people together to highlight the commonalities. And just to have the three of us on stage is a statement in and of itself. But then people realize in watching us that we're friends. Like we've been doing this together. We enjoy each other's company. We hang out. We socialize together. And so this is an important lesson for people to see in our lives and in our stories that not only are the three of us 
coming from three different traditions, but friends, but we not all, we respect each other, but we're bringing messages that are the same with the same experiences and the same kind of um, kind of ethical perspective on life. Yeah. A, a, a typical example, we did a show at Georgia Tech and we're backstage before the show and the president of the co-sponsoring organizations, the Muslim Student Association and Hillel, the Jewish Student Association, I overheard them planning where they were going to go out for dinner afterwards. Very natural, very normal, except later on one of them told me that even though their offices were next door to each other in the student union, before they began planning the Laugh and Peace Tour visit, they'd never spoken to one another. And now through this laughter and through fun, they were friends. And we see, we look out in the audience, especially college shows, we see uh, uh, the mixture of the kids together. Uh, we did a show at, uh, uh, in, in California, uh, I forget where, anyway, it doesn't matter. Uh, there had been some tension on campus, some, some signs taken down, all, and uh, we come into the show and, and the Jewish kids are, are uh, ushering, and the Muslim kids are making the food, and the Christian kids are taking tickets, and they're all working together and they're all hanging out together and they're all having a good time and laughter when people laugh together they can't hate each other and uh, we sort of are, are thrilled to be able to bring that to all kinds of people yeah I think part of this and part of the reward is blurring lines of division oftentimes people will look at different culture different religion from the background like us versus them or them versus them like it's competitive like it's like it's March Madness <laughs> <laughs> but when we perform together, it's like the dream team. People are like, oh, okay, they're, they're on the same page, just a different book maybe. Like, uh, so I think ultimately just going to different communities, seeing a group united has a huge message, even if it's just on a subconscious level. People are like, oh, okay, they're friends, they're, they're working together, which translates to maybe we in our communities can do the same thing. Andy, can I throw a tag out on that? Um, I'm the the Christian chick MC of the show. <laughs> and so usually when I come out, the audience is like trying to figure out what's going on. There's a very diverse sea of faces. Everybody's kind of looking around going, what is this all about? And if I do my job right, within the first you know few seconds even, there's going to be laughter from the whole group. And in that moment, something magic happens. All of a sudden, everyone's world overlaps for a split second because you can't laugh together unless you understand something in common, the base of the joke, something yeah. that you share. And in that time, there's just this energy that happens in the room and people realize, oh, well, we're not only feeling good and laughing together, but we've just shared something that we didn't share before. This CBF podcast is presented to you by the Center for Congregational Health. At the Center, we help lay leaders, clergy, and congregations find ways to thrive in the midst of change. Our experience in highly trained consultants and coaches don't prescribe one-size-fits-all solutions. Instead, we work alongside you and take your unique congregation and ministry context seriously. We believe the wisdom for thriving comes from the leadership of the Spirit. We help create the spaces for congregations to hear and recognize that God-given wisdom. Please visit our website, healthychurch.org, to learn more about the center and find the help you need in order to thrive in ministry. Yeah. That's maybe a good way for us to, to talk about the interfaith nature of your work. Um, you know, for far too many, especially Christians in America, the term religious freedom tends to be 
they want a, a theocratic dominance of the Christian tradition within America. But we as Baptists, actually, uh, religious freedom for all people and all faiths is, is deeply rooted in, in our heritage. So for you, you know, what, is, what does religious freedom uh, mean for you, and how, how do you feel like you're an advocate for it? Everybody's turning to me. Yeah. <laughs> Do you want me? Um, I, I th- I'll, I'll go first. Uh, I think religious freedom to me is is just the freedom to pursue and explore your own beliefs without people trying to change your own beliefs at the same time. Um, part of religious freedom is being a Muslim, performing with a rabbi and a minister. Like it's it's my ability to choose and make my own decisions that are guided by my own beliefs, but not have people uh, try to remove them at the same time. I grew up in a, a relatively conservative Muslim household until I was 13. Uh, so my parents were divorced, remarried to other people. But I, I lived in Virginia, and part of my childhood was, was very attached to the Muslim community there. Then I moved to Western New York, a very rural area. There was no mis- Muslim community. My family then, my mom, my stepdad, and my younger siblings were the religious, or the Muslim community, so to speak. Uh, and I think part of religious freedom is to kind of explore both sides, whether conservative or liberal, and to have the ability to come up with my own definition. Uh, Like, for example, now, and I think it's really cool, my mom, a Muslim woman, works for the Catholic Immigration League, doing nonprofit, helping immigrants and people of different faiths help them out of troubled situations and assimilate into America. And for me, that's just a great example of, of religion mer- merging together for the greater good. So I, I guess religious freedom to me is finding what you think is the greater good and being able to pursue that without worrying about a backlash from other people's opinions. I, I grew up in Rhode Island. So I'm a, I'm a Roger Williams kid. Roger Williams, religious freedom, um, and, and that's that's the kind of community I grew up in. But but still, you know, the other is always frightening. Sometimes, you know, or not not always, but often frightening. And for people to see a funny Muslim, a funny minister, a funny rabbi, uh, it opens them up to to listen to them, to to appreciate them, and to appreciate other people of the same faith. Because often the example of other religions are are frightening or intimidating or off-putting, uh, we change that image, um, and and we hope we, we do it well. Susan, what about for you? Well, I think part of my work is about trying to change the face of the church. So much of it is about judgment and shame, and I'm trying to put a new face on the church like many of us, and this show of a face of joy and hope, which I believe is the core crux of the message, and frankly, the core crux of the message of most of the world religious traditions, which is, you know, welcome and love, um, joy and hope, and bringing people together. And so, yeah, it's about religious freedom, but I guess I'm also working towards respect. The idea that, you know, people look to their neighbor who is different, and not only, it's not this idea of tolerance. I hate that word, but it's respect. It's an upholding of the other. It's a learning from the other. It's, you know, um, enriching your tradition by learning from how other people try to engage God and their path to God. So, you know, Bob and Jabron and I talk about this all the time.
time and I've learned so much from them. We actually we're talking about we're going to do a, a service at Madison. The three of us are going to host the service and um, Bob and um, Asar and I did one a few years ago where literally you know, Asar did the call to worship. Bob did one of the blessings with the three of us did the sermon and the whole service was like done right after the comedy show for the congregation and it was this beautiful holding up of all traditions equally in respect. Hmm. So I mean when you look at your work it's it's a it's a wonderful mod- model of how uh, the medium of comedy promotes the importance of interfaith dialogue. So wh- what does healthy interfaith dialogue look like? Um, you know, do you discuss theology on stage? How do, you, how do you navigate those things? I think this is what healthy interfaith dialogue looks like. Yeah. Um, but beyond that, I think... I don't know if there's one shape or form for how it looks, but uh, I mean, essentially, just people from different backgrounds having a conversation together that doesn't result in them attacking each other. Mm. Kind of just removing that stigmatism of like a polarizing nature of any different, different background and just seeing people communicate and also relate which I think is important that no matter what background you come from, we're all human and we all will relate at that common core. I, I think interfaith dialogue can be done on so many different levels. I was thinking about that show, Bob, that you talked about out in California when the students, the, all the different students were doing different aspects. Of, I remember afterwards, part of my stand-up routine, I talk about Velveeta because <laughs> I'm a southerner and that's what I do. <laughs> and afterwards, I remember sitting in a circle with some Muslim students, Jewish students, and Christian students, and we're all talking about our experiences with Velveeta. Yeah. Like, you know, is that deep theological interfaith conversation? Uh, yeah, it is, because not only are we sharing our common daily experience, but through that, you know, other conversations about about our work, our life, our spiritual path come out, and it just starts there, and it thus trickles down out of that. My my common experience with Velveeta is usually Charmin's <laughs> involved after. <laughs> <laughs> Doesn't fake cheese doesn't settle well with me, uh, but now everybody knows. Well, so. then I can't do this podcast. Yeah, <laughs> okay, I'm out. I, I, you know, if I could add something, I think we're all constantly learning. Not we don't lecture each other, but we learn tidbits from each other. And I've recently started a, a, a crusade, if you will, um, about Muslims. And I, uh, my last show was last week at an Orthodox synagogue, and I said to the audience, how many of you know about the Jewish experience in Albania? And of the 150 people, one person raised his hand, because nobody knows about that. But I want to tell you for quickly what happened in Albania. Albania is the most Muslim country in Europe. Albania is one of the two countries where after the Holocaust, the Jewish population was much, much larger, because the Muslims of Albania did not give up their Jews like they did in, in, in France and in Lithuania and Holland. and places. The Muslims of Albania protected their Jews and about eight, uh, six or eight times the number of Jews that live in Albania came to Albania seeking refuge and they protected them. Mm. 
and that was the uh, this Muslim country has that stellar record, and no one knows about it because it was behind the Iron Curtain, and no one talked about. It. But part of my crusade, I want people to know that that's the way Muslims treated Jews during the most perilous time in our existence. You're welcome, Bob. I mean, as you work together, um, you know, each of your religious traditions certainly informs your worldview. But I wonder how your view or perspective of God has has grown or broadened um, as a result of, of working together and as a team. Um, so this is also goes with interfaith dialogue, but just being with Bob and Susan, I'll have questions that will naturally come up, and it's so awesome to be able to get a, a different religious perspective, or even me learning about religion. So I haven't asked this question, this question yet, but this is an example. Across me, I guess this is video so you can see it as well, but there's all these books. I've heard the term Corinthians multiple times in my life. No idea what it means, but immediately after this, in my head, I was like, oh, I'm to ask Susan what Corinthians means or what it is. So I don't even know what the question is anymore, but <laughs> but it's awesome being around two different groups, I mean individual people, but to be able to learn from them and to feel comfortable enough to ask those questions. Yeah, I mean there's a great debate whether it's second Corinthians or, okay. or two Corinthians. You know, okay. you don't know okay. uh, but now we're talking politics. Yeah, depending yeah. on which biblical yeah, perspective right. you're you're gaining it's from it. Right. So. We'll talk. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Bob, I don't know if you want to. Um, we we don't we don't discuss theology, and and I'm not not theologically driven. I'm a Jewish peoplehood driven. You know, it's it's almost like uh, uh, the definition of an atheist Jew. That's a Jew who knows what the God in whom he does not believe expects of him. So, you know, I I, I would be, uh, you know, my belief in God is like a, a the first cause, and not interfering in human human events. But we don't we don't just, we don't get into that. It's it's not necessary. We there's so much about our communities that we need to share that we like to share, um, and. Uh, our humor is you know, sharing our, our humor. Uh, we entertain each other, and that solidifies our, our relationship. Um, you know, it's, it's it's like when people date. Um, the first date, they say, "Do you like baseball? I like baseball. Let's talk about baseball. Uh, do you like uh, ballet? No, I don't. Oh, I do. Well, let's not talk about ballet." When people of different religions get together, we find the commonality. We're not going to resolve the differences, but we find the commonality. And if we find the commonality is is strong, as is as is humor, uh, then it becomes a unifying factor, and that's what we concentrate on. Mm. I, I tell you what, I've learned, Andy. I've learned through Bob and Jabron how. Um, the love of a greater power, God, um, is expressed. Because I think about in the last year, I mean, it's been a hard year for everybody, but I went through a couple of very difficult things, and Bob and Jabron have been right there. And just to watch how, you know, I lost a friend in July, um, and Bob was just, just 
was sending me beautiful, not only scripture, but poems, um, things from the rabbinical perspective that would lift you up out of a place of sadness. And I was going through some hard stuff and, you know, I was talking to Gibran about it. And he always comes with these beautiful perspectives about a new way of thinking of things and how you can, you know, see it in a different perspective. And coming out of not only the Muslim tradition, but also this psychology background and just who you are, it's just to watch how God works in pe- people's lives and how that beautiful support is happening. So I'm so fortunate from both of you. I, I would I would tag on to that. I, I had a, a very serious uh, motor scooter accident. Uh, I was helicoptered uh, 60 miles away for, anyways, long story. It was terrible. And uh, the first day when, after I woke up in the uh, intensive care, uh, there were flowers there from uh, Gibran and from Susan. Um, that meant a lot to me. It still does. Um, and it's not a question of what kind of God we believe in. It's what kind of humans we are. And uh, we come from different backgrounds, but the humanity is something we shared, and the love is something we shared. And it really, really is important to me and I think to Gibran and Susan. Oh, it's beautiful. People listening to the podcast um, might be thinking, um, I'm not funny, and I don't need to start (laughs) an interfaith, uh, you know, comedy group. So, uh, you know, what advice would you give to people listening to this conversation on how they can get involved or help start interfaith dialogue in their local communities? I would say immediately invite uh, the Laugh and Peace touring comedians uh, <laughs> to your individual community, and we will help you jumpstart that dialogue very quickly. <laughs> One of the things I've used, um, in addition to the Laugh and Peace tour, uh, we uh, in some of the workshops that I do, and I think this works also in interfaith dialogue, invite people to bring something that makes them laugh. You know, we always talk about sharing meals. Food's important, but oh, another yeah, common denominator sure. is while you're eating, invite people to bring something that makes them laugh. Maybe it's a picture of their pet or a photograph of their kids or a book or an image or something funny they keep on their desk. That translates over culture, through culture, through religion, you know, through any demographic. And as you're eating, then you share those and the mm-hmm. stories come out and then all of a sudden the commonalities come out. Great. I'd go with both of them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think food is huge. Yeah. Because yeah. everyone has different types of foods that they like. A lot of them are the same. A lot of them are different. I don't really know what I'm advocating for, a potluck, but uh, but inviting people from different communities will really unite people when you're not hungry. <laughs> this might be a wonderful opportunity for um, each of you to maybe shamelessly plug something that uh, you're doing from your individual end of, of the spectrum. Well, they all turn to me, so I will start. I love that. Thank you for opening the door, Andy, for a shameless plug. I appreciate that. <laughs> um, if anybody's interested, I you can just find out most of the information about me on my website, susansparks.com. I will put a little plug out. I have a new book coming out in June that I'm very excited about called Miracle on 31st Street. Oh, cool. <laughs> it's a play on uh, our churches at 31st Street, but it is a collection of holiday-themed meditations that are evergreen to bring us joy all year long. And so it hits in June to be able to be there for folks that might be interested in the Christmas in July reading series. But the full title is Miracle on 31st Street. 
Christmas cheer every day of the year, Grinch to Gratitude in 26 days. And there you have it. Well, June 7th on you're Amazon. You're so close to the Macy's near the parade. You I know. just go out and pass out copies. I know. That's what I was thinking. <laughs> I was trying to get an endorsement from the Macy's Christmas guy, you know, the Santa, but yeah, that didn't work out. Yeah. But, okay. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. That's I, I didn't know you had that book coming I'm pretty out. excited. There's also Preaching Punchlines. Preaching Punchlines yeah, and Laugh, laugh Your Way to Grace. And yes. So please go to my website and check it out. I don't have any specific thing that I would like to plug except for my social media, which is all platforms at Gibran Saleem. That's this is what I always say uh, on the phone with my internet service. Uh, at Gibran Saleem, G is in giant, I, B is in Bob, R, A, N is in Nancy, S is in Susan, A, L, E, E, M is in Merry Christmas. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> and happy Hanukkah. Uh, but there's no H. That's it. So, um, I have a website. It's bobalper.com. B-O-B-A-L-P-E-R.com. People think our name is Alpert. But it, it actually was Alpert, but we uh, we dropped the, the T at a party in Boston. So uh, it's uh, it's Alper. So, but on bobalper.com, first of all, in the opening page, there's video. And there's a video of Laugh and Peace. It's about a six or seven in a demo video. You can see all three of us performing. Um, you'll laugh out loud, we hope. Uh, there's other stuff on my website, including uh, I've written a couple books, Life Doesn't Get Any Better Than This, The Holiness of Little Daily Dramas, and another book called Thanks, I Needed That, and Other Stories of the Spirit. These are, are serious books, um, also available in Barnes & Noble, etc., etc., but they're serious books, the collections of between uh, 35 and 44 separate chapters of inspiring material, a little humor in it too, but uh, I'm very proud of both books. And I have a, a DVD and a couple CDs. Um, I have a CD called uh, uh, 101 Guaranteed Funny, 101 Totally Clean Jokes. And on the front of the CD is a little blurb that said, Voted Year's Best Comedy CD. And people ask, you know, where the vote was taken. Uh, it was at our Seder. Um, so. Uh, um, that's all on my website, and uh, also on the website, uh, if you go there, you'll find a way to contact us. Uh, if you shoot me an email, I'll be happy to send anyone uh, information about how to bring the Laugh and Peace Tour to your town. And, and for our Generation Z that are listening, uh, a CD is a compact disc <laughs> that you put into a player yes. that spins it into motion and, and makes sound. Is that correct? Is that pretty I, accurate? I, I think so. Uh, it, it might be. We have videotapes, too. <laughs> and, and, and cassettes. Yeah. There's oh. a word. You've probably never heard of that one. Yeah, cassette. Yeah, cassette. Eight tracks. Eight yeah, tracks. Yeah. Uh, well, Jabron, Bob, and Susan, thank you for, uh, first of all, for sitting down and having this conversation. Um, but more importantly, thank you for modeling for us the brilliance of mutual respect and love through the necessary art in our lives of comedy. Thank you. Thank you. Pleasure. Yeah. Glad Happy to be here. Well, that's it. That's our conversation. Be sure to support our annual sponsors by visiting their websites at fuller.edu and healthychurch.org. Check out cbf.net for information about our church starters, field personnel, advocacy work, chaplains, and much more. Oh, and uh, one more thing. I don't think we've mentioned it on the podcast before, but visit cbf.net backslash podcast support for ways that you can contribute to the CBF podcast conversations and get some pretty cool stuff in return.